Edwards at Ephesus in the city of Miletus. He's called them there because he doesn't have time to stop at Ephesus. And he tells about what, uh, what things were like when he was with them in 1821. And then he uses an and now, and he talks about what he's going to do. He's going to Jerusalem knowing that bonds and afflictions await him there, but he's resolved to be faithful regardless of the consequences. And then you have verse 25, and now, and this is going to really be his statement to these elders that involves what they ought to be and do. So, would somebody read chapter 20, verses 25 to 31? And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He's thinking that he won't see them again. And of course, if you think that, you're going to say important things, kind of last sorts of things. That's a little bit of a challenging passage because it looks to me like Paul was in Ephesus after this. He what we know that we know some things for sure. He went from here to Jerusalem, got in prison, went to uh, Caesarea, and then to Rome. But apparently, there there's other possibilities, I suppose. But it looks most likely that he was released from prison and then wrote First Timothy and Titus. Well, he tells Timothy in First Timothy one that he left him in Ephesus. And that would make me think he was probably there to have left him there. Now, you know, you could perhaps figure out some way of trying to get First Timothy written before Paul, before this time. But I don't think that's very likely from a variety of perspectives and almost nobody takes that position. So I take it that Paul had no intention of ever seeing them again, but that his plans changed. And that that happens to Paul. You know, we see in 2 Corinthians 1 that the Corinthians even criticized him because he changed his travel plans. And he will say from time to time, if the Lord wills, you know, in connection with travel plans. And we even saw him back earlier in chapter 20, changing his plan because of the plot that he found out about with the Jews and going a different way. So that's, I, I view that as a difficulty. That's my solution at the moment that he probably did see them again, he just didn't expect to at this point. Anybody want to offer a better solution to that? I've looked for one, and so far I haven't been able to find one, so that's the best I can do with that. The rest of this is, I think, very practical. Um, in 26 and 27, Paul said that he was innocent of the blood of all men. Now, Normally, if somebody said that, I would think they meant they hadn't killed anybody. <laughs> you know, but what does Paul mean? He doesn't hesitate to teach the truth on anything. 
How did that make him innocent of their blood? Well, it made them responsible for before God. Exactly. Paul was entrusted by God with the gospel. If he doesn't reveal that and warn them, then he bears guilt in their demise, in their punishment. Because he didn't warn them. He didn't tell them what he knew. Once he tells them everything, it's not his fault. He's innocent of their blood. It goes back to passages like Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel 33, where God commissions Ezekiel as a watchman. And the idea of, if you have a watchman, you know, that, that was a big thing for them. You know, there was a whole different uh, technology uh, situation for them. So you post the watchman on top of the walls of the city watching for an army who might be advancing even in the dark of the night. Now what if the watchman saw a danger? He saw the army advancing, but he didn't warn. Well, it's his fault. What if he warned and the people didn't listen? It's their fault. So this is, this is Paul saying, I taught you everything. At this point, it's not my fault if you don't respond. I did the teaching. Comments and, and thoughts on 26 and 27? Well, he, he tells these elders, especially what their job is. And it's interesting what he tells them to do in verse 28. What's the first thing he tells them to do? Take heed of themselves. Yes. That's always the first thing we need to do. First, apply God's word in our own life. And then teach it to others. But, but we, we sh the, the first thing we need to do is let the word change our lives. Um, it, Paul says the same thing to the evangelist Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. First job, change yourself. Do what's right yourself. And then these elders are to be on guard for all the flocked, the flock that God made them overseers over, and their job is to shepherd the church that, that the Lord purchased with his own blood. There's a lot in that. When it says for them to shepherd the church that he purchased with his own blood, what is the church? The people. Yeah, the people of God. The sheep that they're shepherding are the Christians in the congregation. Well, how did God, how did Jesus purchase the church with his own blood? He redeemed them, each individual. Yes. He shed his blood that paid the price to buy each of these people out of sin and bring them into light. When you think about Jesus buying the church, don't think about him buying something that people need to get into. What he died for and what he bought are the people. We sometimes short circuit on that one and we begin thinking of a spiritual institution instead of thinking of people. The elders shepherd the people Jesus died for. 
Now, the fact that Jesus died for those people means he, can, he, he, he treasures them and values them. They have a special value to God, and therefore, these elders ought to shepherd them carefully and watch over the flock. Now, there's a lot of things that are involved in shepherding. In fact, it's really interesting to study Old Testament passages that talk about shepherd, shepherds' roles. Like the, the leaders were called shepherds, and so passages like Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, and Zechariah 11, and passages like that talk about what a good shepherd does, what a bad shepherd does. And it can give you some ideas of shepherding roles. There's even like Psalm 23 and things like that talk about a shepherd's responsibility. Um, but in this passage, there's a couple of special things that he's really, uh, you know, emphasizing. Um, uh, particularly, look at verse 29 and 30. What's he warning them about, and how does this relate to their role as a shepherd? What's he warning them about? These wolves! Well, now, you know, they have a lot of wild animal problems in Ephesus. You know, he's using an analogy from the Christians being sheep. If you were a physical shepherd, you'd have to worry about the wolves carting off the sheep and destroying them. As a spiritual shepherd over God's people, what are the wolves you're worried about? False the false teachers. The people who would mislead and draw away disciples. And so the responsibility of the shepherd is to watch out for the wolves and to protect the sheep from them. In fact, Paul says here, it will be from among your own selves that some men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Sometimes it's not just non-Christians that teach things that are wrong and mislead disciples. Sometimes it's even Christians. I don't. I wondered if he even meant possibly even from among the elders themselves, but at least from among the brethren. Some may, you know, start teaching things that are wrong and be a threat to the faithfulness of the disciples. So, one of the special jobs of, a, of an elder is to watch out for people who would mislead the sheep and turn them away from the truth of the gospel into error. Now there's a lot of other things shepherds do. What are other things shepherds do for the sheep for sheep? Yeah, food. Yeah, provide nourishment. Well a spiritual shepherd does that. So many passages talk about elders, talk about them teaching. There's a lot of emphasis on teaching, because that's kind of the the spiritual food. And uh you know, leading. You know, a shepherd leads and, and directs the sheep into, into uh, secure places, into um, places that have, you know, all that they need, the water and the pasture and so forth. So it, it's very fruitful to think about the elder's role in terms of, of the shepherd, as well as in terms of an overseer. That's the other word that he uses here. Really, this passage combines, in 17, the word elder, Within 28, the idea of overseer and shepherd, which all are, those three terms are different, but they all refer to the same people, the same men. An overseer is basically a what? Bishop. Bishop. And a bishop is basically a what? Overseer. <laughs> um, I think we're not getting anywhere though. What's a word we know? that would be a, a reasonable translation for overseas. Superintendent. Superintendent, yeah. Superintendent, foreman, something like that. Somebody who's in charge of seeing that things are done properly. That's part of the elder's role. They're superintending. They're, they're, they're in charge of the, the flock. 
to see to it that things are are done properly. Um, so I mean, those that really gives you a pretty good overall view of what these brethren were supposed to do. Paul's commissioning them; he's telling them this, and uh, you know, concerned that they perform their role properly. Comments and questions on this stuff through thirty-one. Did we say protect from wolves and the passage says that? But elders really do have to do that. Absolutely. They have to, you know, uh, warn the sheep and try to lead them away from bad influences, false teachers, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. Because there are a lot of things that threaten the souls of the sheep. Mm -hmm. I like that Psalm 23, yea, though. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Because there are people lurking. Absolutely. There's all kinds of dangers. Mm -hmm. And we see sheep succumbing to wolves right and left. It's a special preoccupation for the shepherd. Mm -hmm. Constantly watching, constantly guiding and leading away from those dangers and protecting. That's a, that's a really big responsibility. I mean, you know, man, if you were a real shepherd of physical sheep, you don't want to lose half your flock to wolves coming in when you weren't bothering to be with the sheep or watch for them. I mean, uh, there may be times, certainly in the spiritual shepherding, where the sheep just won't listen and refuses to follow. But the shepherd needs to be very alert and seeking to do all he can to protect the sheep. Other thoughts? Going back a little before the instructions to the elders, Paul's statement in 26 and 27 is really uh, a revealing statement about what he has done, what he's trying to do. He's, he hasn't left a stone unturned or he didn't intend to leave a stone unturned as far as what they needed to hear, whether they liked it or not. You're right. Other thoughts? Cameron. Going back to how you said that they need to guide them and stuff, uh, guide the sheep, they not only need to guide them, but they also need to get rid of the threat, get rid of the wolves coming up. Yeah, how do they do that? Discipline, and if okay. you're in the church, to get them out of the church. Yeah, good point. A shepherd wouldn't just be a nice guy, would he? You know, he would uh, forcefully oppose false teachers. In fact, in one of the lists of, like, qualities that a shepherd must have in Titus chapter 1, it specifically talks about the responsibility to refute and withstand false teachers. That is a big responsibility of, of the shepherd. And we're kind of in one of these, you know, cultures where, well, it doesn't make a difference what you do, what you believe, you know, I don't, we, yeah, we, like, we keep everybody happy. And people think that the that, uh, elder's job is to keep people happy. I don't recall that on the job description or the qualification or anything else. You know, it's not keeping them happy, it's keeping them safe. 
keeping them well fed, keeping them uh, free from disease, you know, helping the sheep thrive, you know, not necessarily worrying about what the sheep want. You know, I mean, uh, sheep may sometimes not sense the danger and they may like the looks of this or that path and shepherd knows it's not the right path, not the way to go. And, uh, but, but, you know, a foolish shepherd would say, ah, but the sheep wants to go there. I, you know, I just hate to tell him that that's not a good idea, you know. I mean, the sheep might get mad at me if I told him that well, he wanted to go there and, you know, things like that. That's, that sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? Spare the rod and spoil the sheep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Paul himself said in First Corinthians 4, do you want me to come with uh, the rod or with love or something like that? So... Uh, Got a little Bible behind it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, other thoughts or comments? Makes you wonder why anybody would want to be a shepherd. <laughs> well, I think I know the answer to that. Why would somebody want to be the sh uh, shepherd? Because he loves people's souls. He loves the sheep. Yeah, concerned about the direction that people take. Exactly. Cares about the sheep that Jesus loved enough to die for. Mm -hmm. and that's the thing. If you were if you had the same heart and attitude Jesus did, if he was willing to die for the sheep, what would you be willing to do for them? Well, whatever it takes. You want you care about God's flock. And you want to you know, do a hard job. Shepherding is not an easy job, not even physically, but you want to do it because you care about God's sheep and you want to see them fed and protected and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You'd like to see them happy, but uh, that is not your main goal. That's exactly right. Well, it's kind of like, you know, the analogy that Ryan made with children. You know, what kind of situation will you have if parents consistently, their main thought is, how can I keep my kids happy? Mm -hmm. You know what that will end up with? Unhappy. Children who are very unhappy. Yeah. Whoa. If you want to make your children miserable, try to make them happy all the time. You know, that's, isn't that ironic? It's kind of true in our own life, too. You know, the best way to be miserable? Try to make yourself happy all the time. That ends in disaster. You know, happiness is always only a, a, a result, a byproduct. It's never something we ought to pursue. Other thoughts? Cameron. We should be pursuing um, eternal happiness, not earthly happiness. Yes, and even more, you know, we pursue the Lord, you know. Now, we pursue Him because we love Him. Uh, he, he certainly makes us happy, but, but more than that, we, we care about Him. We're committed to Him. We trust Him. You know, we want to glorify Him, you know. And, and the Lord's not concerned about happiness in us. He's concerned about making us into something that he knows we can be and he wants to make us. You know, we just get, we get way concerned about the wrong things. I mean, can you imagine a football coach whose main thought is, how can I keep these boys happy? 
Oh, oh my. What kind of a team would that be? You know, oh, coach, it's hot today. We don't want to run. You know, we're a little bruised. We don't want to hit today. You know, all that. Wow. You just, you never accomplish anything just trying to keep people happy. Well, probably enough of that. 32 to 35. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So here's the last and now. And I think about how difficult it must have been for Paul to leave them. You know, and think he'll never see him again. And none of them had cell phones. <laughs> and, you know, what do you do? I mean, how do you leave them? You know the wolves that are going to come along. You know there's all these dangers and problems and all that. Well, I think it's verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. There have been plenty of times that I, I might have just had a really hard time leaving somebody if I didn't believe that the Lord could take care of them. You know? And you commend them to the Lord. And you commend them to His Word. Those are the things that are, are able to take care of them. So I think that's a really cool statement on Paul's part. And then he cites his own example as an example to them as far as what he did when he was there among the Ephesians, what did he do? Can you tell what he did? He worked. He admonished day and night with tears. Yeah, he worked. He and, taught. And, and taught. But the point he's making primarily in like uh, 33 to, to 35 is he didn't mooch off of them. He worked hard to provide for his own needs and to share with others. And he wants them to have that same mentality of hard work and sharing. If anybody should have had the right not to work, it had been Paul. He's got plenty of work to do otherwise. But, but he seemed to have almost a tendency at times to want to work with his own hands to show the brethren that's how they ought to operate. I wonder why he has to do that so much. I wonder why they were so prone to evidently not want to work. wasn't just them though was it didn't he use this argument with uh, other churches <coughs> yes so I'm saying why in various places does it seem like now you know in a place like Corinth it seemed to be a little different point you know almost like he doesn't want them to think they've made him rich and he doesn't want the false teachers to come along and use him as an example 
so that they can charge exorbitant salaries. But I'm thinking about like in Thessalonica. You know, Paul also, he worked while he was with and And he seems to use that a lot as an example. You know, almost like he worked so he could set the example. But I'm thinking, well, that's odd. I mean, you know, that in at least a couple of churches, maybe others, there was such a threat from people not working. You know, we're pretty much in a culture where mostly people work if we can get a job. You know, what, what's the deal with these Christians, you know, needing Paul to, to work hard so he can then point to him and say, you know, this is what I did. What do you think? I wonder why they had such a hard time with that. I think I know at least one of the reasons. Weren't some people stopping working because they thought the end was going to come really soon? People say that. That's not my view. But that's a really common view. But I don't think that's the case. I think there's a different reason. They're lazy. Well, yeah. But you know there's something that usually motivates lazy people? Hunger. Exactly. <laughs> why doesn't it motivate these guys? I bet why it doesn't motivate these guys. Others are taking care of them? I think so. What do you know about the early Christians? Very generous. And that's a point that's really made in Second Thessalonians 3. The passage that really talks about the need to work and not be in need. <laughs> That's quite okay. Push it on. Push it on. Push one of the side buttons. It, it was worth it to see you embarrassed. Always <laughs> get that every once in a while. Second Thessalonians three. Um, he's talking about, you know, the need to, you know, work. And if somebody doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And you know, he says, we've given this exhortation, we've given you the example, we taught you this when you're here, and now we're telling you again. And and he says in verse eleven of Second Thessalonians three, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Now I think that's a real telling statement in verse 13. You, brethren, you keep doing good in spite of these freeloaders that have taken advantage of your generosity. And I think that's why they were quitting working. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you? Well, hopefully not. But you can imagine, you know, man, the brethren will support me. They'll take care of me. You know, they're bringing their money and laying it at the apostles' feet or, you know, giving it to the church or whatever and, you know, give to those who have no... We're, you know, we just, man, we just need a lot. You know, we just, uh, you know, jobs are just whatever. And so... He wants the abuse stopped. You work. You provide for yourself. Should Christians be generous? Absolutely. Are there times when people need benevolent help? Absolutely. Should that be something I, um, you know, abuse for out of laziness? 
Well, if I do that, you know what I'm doing? I'm not acting in love. Look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is such an interesting connection. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for, any, uh, for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Love more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and, and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Part of the application of love is not being lazy and mooching off of people. Because if you're lazy and you mooch off of people, you're not really loving them. You're taking advantage of them. Is that to say that when there's legitimate need that we shouldn't ask or we shouldn't receive? No. But it means that if I'm just using the system when I could and should work just because I don't want to, I'm not really showing love because I'm more interested in what? Receiving than giving. And what does Paul say in Acts 20? Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. You work to be a giver. I think that teaching is needed sometimes. These are such sensitive issues. You know, it's difficult to talk about these kinds of things. I remember years ago, being in a meeting in a church, many, many, many years ago, and they had a situation that was just so complicated. They were really struggling what to do with it. The preacher had preached some sermons, trying, biblically, trying to deal with it. Had a guy who had a, apparently reasonably able-bodied and able-minded and never seemed to be able to work and needed all kinds of help and you know it was really a, a tough issue I mean you know he was competent and I don't know just never seemed to work out for him <laughs> you know and what do you do in those situations well you don't quit doing good you don't just say hey we're not help anybody you know around here you take care of yourself that's it I don't care what your situation is no don't grow weary of doing good. Keep being generous. In fact, that's what he's saying in Acts 20. You know, he ministered to his own needs and helped other people too. That's what we ought to do. But we ought to teach people, you be a giver, not a receiver in every way you can. And I think that's the example Paul's leaving here. And I think that was a problem among the early Christians. Now, it may not be a problem among us. If we're so stingy, we never help. Or it may not be a problem among us if we're so prosperous, there's never a time to. But in the early, among the early Christians, that seems to have been an issue that creeps up, crops up, you know, in several of these passages. Thoughts that come? I, I think it is really important to recognize that uh, there, and you mentioned there are other ways of showing love, and, and one way to show love is to try to teach people uh, what Paul is teaching right here, that they need to supply their own needs. Uh, uh, there's in, the, in, in Ephesians 4 and verse 28, uh, Paul says, Let him who stole steal no more, rather let him labor working with his hands, thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. In other words, he's, he wants him to go to work, not just to take care of his own needs, but to be able to help others as well. 
And so that sort of turns this thinking around that you're describing that I'm going to sit and wait and let others take care of me. It turns that around to where I'm going to do what I can to provide for myself and to be able to help others too. The right thing. Yeah. It's a good, good principle. It's what Paul was doing here. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. Paul himself was helping others. He was being generous with others, working to take care of himself and more while he was preaching and teaching. Pretty impressive. It's not like Paul took a vow of doing that. There were times that he quit working and worked full-time in the gospel. He defends that right. But he thought it was important to set the example. And, you know, very instructive. Very, man, very uh, challenging for us. You know, the, the commitment that he had in things like that. And, you know, it's hard to, you know, even if we're a hard-working person, you know what you usually think? Man, I worked hard for this. I earned it. It's mine. I'm going to keep it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to spend it for me. I mean, it's not anybody else's. Well, that's not the right mentality. Yeah. Yeah, I, I obviously agree that it's better to give than to receive and I just wanna make sure that we know too sometimes it's sometimes we gotta make sure that we're not too proud to not ask for help though too when you know, when we might really need help, you know, of something. I mean yes. you, I mean weird things happen where people almost catch on fire and they you know, I mean things happen where we where we lose things, you know what I mean? So I just you know, I'm sure we're not sometimes we just gotta make sure we're not too proud to accept help from others too. And but that, but obviously, I agree. Our main focus should be able to provide others with stuff. Well, so you know, there's so many angles in these things, mm -hmm. and you're exactly right. You know, I mean, I would teach people from Second Corinthians eight. God wants equality. Mm -hmm. He could have achieved it directly. Could God have seen to it that everybody got the same amount? Well, of course, He didn't. God gave abundance to some and need to others. Why? Because he's not a communist. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> because he wants those who have the abundance to have the experience of giving and those who have the need to have the experience of receiving. God wants equality. He just took a two-step process to get there. And... So God wants those with the need to humble themselves and receive. God didn't have to give them the need. Now, if their need is self-inflicted, too lazy to work, that's a whole different matter. So here, it's on that one side. But other passages are going to be on the other side. And so we have to balance that out. And unfortunately, you know, I think to some extent, there's probably at least some truth in this. The people who really ought to be working and not asking for help are the people who almost defiantly ask or demand and those who really ought to be receiving and who genuinely need it are the most embarrassed and reluctant to ask. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a lot of times that that's the case. Mark? If there's any time like if you believe that somebody's just kind of looking around being lazy that you would refrain from uh, helping them out. 
Yeah, if any man does not work, neither let him eat. I think that's exactly what Paul's saying in Second Thessalonians three ten. Quit feeding them. There's nothing that motivates like hunger. What is the proverb that says that? There's a proverb along that line, but I can't come up with it at the moment. But yeah, I mean that's the best thing I know for a motivating work. It's a good, healthy appetite and not any food. Do you think it would give a man a fish? No. <laughs> no, I'm thinking about a proverb in the book of Proverbs. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember what it is, but there's something along that line that, you know, a, a man's appetite motivates it. Mm. Or you could just give up your birthright. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that what he gave up? Yeah. His birthright? Is that what it was? Yeah, he's, uh, J yeah, Jacob and Esau. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, he did. Sold it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, other comments or questions through 35? 36 to 38. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. That's just three verses, but can you see the emotion in those three verses? Wow. Wow. Good thing. Prayed together. They wept and hugged Paul and kissed him over and over again. Grieved over what he'd spoken. And went with him to the ship. I mean, went as far as they could with it. You can see that all happening, can't you? You know, you go right out there, right to the, 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 the shore, see him on board the ship, and he's gone. That, that must have been a really emotional thing, really hard. Comments and questions? All right. Um, how about chapter 21, as Paul is on his way to Jerusalem?